0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cyberdelia. I'm Dave. I'm Mo. And uh, today, well, what are we talking about today, Mo? That's a great question. It's 2020. Why are these things still a thing? Ah. And the more I think about it, the more I'm like, why is that still a thing? Um, Hmm. it's 2020. I was so sure this was going to be the future. There there was a Sega Genesis game called Super Baseball 2020 and there were robots and like <laughs> it was so cool and I don't know. I I feel like 2020 this year it's felt a little more like middle ages. Um yeah. yeah. when was Terminator's Judgment way? Day? Like did we pass that already? We passed it, right? Oh yeah, we we've we passed that. We passed Back to the Future too. Um okay. And, you know, I, I get flying cars are actually a terrible idea because we're really bad at just normal cars. Um, I, I mm-hmm. can only imagine what would happen if you actually had flying cars. They'd just be like flying into buildings and stuff. It would be terrible. Uh-huh. So much
1: noise pollution on the ground. Oh. Can you imagine those things taking off and being
0: on the ground? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. But um, there there's some things that I want to talk about where it's like, why is that still a thing? And this is actually something that like this really should be a solvable problem. So yeah. I, one of them. So we're recording this. When we actually have another uh, recording already that I, I need to finish the editing on. But, and I uh, to finish the show notes on. But there was a interesting little... Uh, I don't know if I can call it a bug or not, um, but we, we use this program that rhymes with Stipe. So when you download the recording, it, it saves it as uh, video.mp4. And what I found out is when you uh, save another video after that, it will also use video.mp4 and knock out your old recording, which, you know, if, if that recording was important, that's uh, a, a very scary bug. So uh, fortunately, I was able to save episode nine because I had a backup. That, that was a very scary moment where I, I realized, oh my God, did it actually just do that? That sort of behavior, it's 2020. Why is that still a thing?
1: Yeah. Yeah. At a minimum, I'm presuming that a timestamped file name might be nice. Yeah, uh, yeah,
0: or even just a simple check of, hey, we noticed that you've already got a file named to video.mp4. Losing data in general, how is that still possible? So, like, there was another thing that happened this week where I was writing this very long email, like, you know, a war and peace novel-length email, <laughs> um, and I guess it's with the uh, Mac... Microsoft Outlook, um, I, I supposedly the Windows one doesn't have this, but there's no autosave functionality, and so you know the corporate management software forced a reboot, which was oh, delightful, no. oh, and no. Oh, no. you can guess what happened. That email was <laughs> gone. So get me started gone. on Jamf. <laughs> oh, Jamf so bad. Jamf. <laughs> I, I, oh. Well, the, the things it'll allow, so there was a a script I saw in a Jamf uh, scenario called Delet-O-Matic, which boy, that's a really comforting <laughs> that thing. That's a great thing
1: you want running on your machine.
0: <laughs> yeah, Deleteomatic. <laughs> should we? Ex- what is Jamf? Maybe we should explain what Jamf is. Oh yeah. So anyone who uh, works in a large corporate type environment, you're already or you should already have the understanding that that laptop is not private. So there's things on there that you know. It makes sure that your patches are up to date. It also checks like it's basically sort of cover your butt sort of stuff. And some of it can be good. Like there's stuff that'll check for spyware and stuff. That's good. Um, but then there's, there's the stuff which it's not really designed by, you know, the, the higher companies that sell the stuff. It's just someone in it said, we need to have something that looks for this and it's only usable for this corporation. And the quality there is uh suspect. <laughs> Like, I know well, you've got a few talk about mo- it, it'll be fine, right? Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> as long as yeah. we just put our heads down in the sand and assume it's all good and don't talk about it,
0: it's all fine, right? Right? Yeah. MDM yeah. profiles, no problem. And uh, don't get me wrong, there, there's definitely, uh, you can, the stuff wouldn't exist if there wasn't a real problem it was trying, trying to solve. The problem right, is, right. is the implementation of it. It's just, ooh, yeah. it's bad.
1: I mean, the benefit of it is that it allows us to work remotely and from different areas of the world, which is nice without having to require physical access to an office. You know, for organizations to have some level of control over their devices using MDM profiles and Jamf, you know, creates a sort of uh, liberties for those who can't go to the office or can't relocate. So that is like a definite positive for the whole idea in general. However...
0: However, there's stuff like <laughs> scraping the bash history of uh, oh, people's laptops,
1: SSH keys being dropped in backdoors. Oh gosh! Uh, yeah, root act programs being run as root uh, that you know you have no idea what the what the consequences of those programs well and how well hardened they are. Poorly written script making assumptions such as first name dot last
0: name. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, yep. because everyone has a first name and a last name, and yeah. there is no permutation that that might be different. Uh,
1: yeah. Or, yeah, it's or, funny. Like the same, we don't have the same level of rigor. Or I shouldn't say we, but I mean, like some organizations may not have the same level of rigor in terms of auditing and managing the scripts that they use for auditing and managing devices, which is sad to me. Who watches the watchers? <laughs> yes, who watches the watchers? Like who's reviewing the MDM? Uh, Or JMF scripts. This looks like it worked on my machine.
0: Let's ship it. (laughs) Yeah, let's ship it. Um, And since, you know, a normal customer doesn't see it, it's okay if it crashes someone's laptop when they're trying to get work done.
1: Uh, It'll probably work if you just reboot. Just reboot.
0: Yeah. No such thing as second order consequences. Um, (laughs) I don't know what that means. I'll have to ask you. Oh, well, so second order consequences and second order thinking is, okay, so first order is look. Sometimes people run bad bash things, so we're going to save save everyone's bash history, so that way we can check it. But a second order thinking would be like, well, wait, what are the possible consequences of like storing all that somewhere? Is right. well, what if someone plain text oh, puts a password or something in their bash oh, history? No. Now, now this no. is an exfiltration mechanism, or you know, like corporate backup software where it's like, well, someone saved a, a key in plain text somewhere. Well, now that's exfiltrated. And so the normal chain of like, well, how on earth did this private key end up on paste bin? It really right. throws a monkey wrench into how you threat model. Because yeah. it's like, okay, the backups of those backups, what happens? Like, right. uh, it's, oh my it's turtles all the way down. So second order consequences is realizing that you're trying to solve a problem, but in the course of trying to solve that problem, you might actually create new problems. So, like system D. Um, anyway, I'll leave that. <laughs> I think you said System D. I might have. Uh, But that's a different episode.
1: It's already past getting big. It's now its own universe. Oh,
0: Uh, yeah. I'm I'm waiting for the System D uh, libc library. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, of course.
1: Um, Yeah. Yeah, something recently changed in Fedora 33 related to DNS, I think, like System D Resolve uh was like made the default for dns resolution in yep. uh, fedora 33 yeah um which was on my list to
0: dive into It's it's system d all the things um yeah my again my problems with system d have always been ones of look i understand the problems that you're trying to solve and th- they are good ones but the implementation is just ugh. like why <laughs> on earth are we writing this in in c so 2020, why is this still a thing? Why are we still using memory unsafe languages for for anything? Because Go and Rust, they're ready. They are actually totally, uh, they're good replacements for this stuff now. They're mature. And so that we're writing any serious systems code, especially anything that involves sockets or networking, good Lord, why are we still doing this to ourselves? Mm -hmm. Like anything new, we're just going to have to scrap it later. I mean, I, I hate to say like, oh, I'd I'd love to be the one who, uh, you know, buries that. But like, we're we're going to have to, as a society, move past this stuff because it's, uh, it, it's like still building bridges out of wood. Like, I'm sure there's certain use cases where it's like, oh, it's a small bridge and great, but we have steel now. Um, we really should consider <laughs> steel. It's, I think it'll work. You know, that's a pretty good
1: example that I think uh, sticks quite well. This is a bit of a tangent from System D and sort of jumping over to CentOS and some of the changes that are being made with CentOS in terms of support. Oh. And I just realized this is a question that I have been wanting to ask you for a little while since I read that news to get your thoughts around it. And I'm also curious to know if this has anything to do with the IBM acquisition, or I suppose that's not something you could answer, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it.
0: I can certainly shoot from the gut. um, Yeah, yeah, (laughs) if you you don't mind. Probably an uneducated opinion. but um, So if we look at what CentOS was trying to accomplish, and for those who are not familiar with CentOS, Red Hat, the company, releases Red Hat Enterprise Linux, which you pay for support on it, and when you pay for those licenses, that's how you get that engineering. And to be fair, like Red Hat does a lot. Yeah, there's System D, but... Ignoring that, like, look at how much they do for the Gnome Foundation. Look at how much they do for X. Like, honestly, that money goes to good use. And I, I can't bug them about a good hustle. Yeah, yeah. So CentOS was how, uh, let's take these open source, uh, or the source RPMs from Red Hat. We've removed the trademarks and a- anything that gets you into, you know, legal hot water and release those as it so it's a knockoff red hat but like essentially binary compatible which is nice and where that comes in handy is like a lot of startups or businesses where they're never going to be able to afford red hat licenses but they actually Mm -hmm. do have needs for a red hat type solution um Mm -hmm. it filled that uh hole and i always felt that that actually did work out in red hat's favor because yeah if you're trained on red hat like yeah yeah. If you're if you're good with CentOS, you're good with Red Hat and you're pushing commits to the Fedora project. Like it, it was yeah. a healthy ecosystem. Yeah. So what is Fedora? Fedora was um it, it was actually branched off. So ori- originally, if you go way, way back, it was all just Red Hat Linux. And Fedora was forked off because there was people who wanted to be running newer kernels. There was people who they didn't have commercial considerations, but they wanted to be running Linux at home. So right. I remember yeah. when it was.
1: Red Hat oh, was supposed to be more stable in that sense. And so Fedora was the, a way to, to bring in newer versions of packages without having to worry about stability, but still be on the Red Hat ecosystem.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. I, okay. I mean, it appealed to developers and um, it made sure that CentOS, uh, or Red Hat Enterprise Linux was still stable. And, and CentOS dealt with, again, that sort of like midpoint. Mm-hmm. So what recently just happened um, is that, Red Hat decided, okay, CentOS is actually going to be a little ahead of Red Hat Enterprise Linux, so it's actually no longer, you know, sort of a knockoff. It's actually somewhere in between Fedora and Red Hat Enterprise Linux. So they're they're saying, hey, you're actually going to be a tester. But here's the thing, people didn't want to be testers. They actually wanted wanted stable. (laughs) They wanted a stable API compatible like. Yeah. And, And so.
1: we involuntarily like converted all these people who had stable environments to
0: testers now for the next version of uh, Red Hat Enterprise Edition. And where this gets even more interesting is what really appealed on you know using CentOS, using RHEL, was that you had a long term release cycle. So right. I, I forget you the exact stability for a long time. Yeah, you had stability. So initially it was okay, we're going to regularly update packages. And then we deal with security issues at, on the later end, but, like, no feature updates. And and that was a decent trade-off, because, like, there there's two lines of thinking. One is which there are things which, honestly, people just don't get to all that often. And you actually do want stability there. Like, I don't know about you, but I really like stability on, like, centrifuges or, uh, like, really like stability on hydroelectric dam software or something like that. Yeah, like, that sounds good. Stuff, you know what? You probably don't need the latest GLibC. Uh, you want something that there's going to be the occasional bug fix patch, but honestly, nothing nothing suspect there. Yeah. And I feel like the thinking here might have been, hey, uh, the people who are using CentOS, they're freeloaders, they'll never move. But again, you're, you're sort of ignoring that you got all this free mindshare. Like, Mm-hmm. The Red Hat ecosystem, percentage wise of the Linux ecosystem, like there's Ubuntu and Red Hat, you know, like th- that was a Beatles Rolling Stones situation. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I mean, people like myself where I, I've been uh, a Red Hat Linux variant user for decades, I, like since I was a teenager. But if you can believe that, oh, um, I can. And, yes, of course I can. But wow. So to me, that's that's a real I, it, it was already a little strange when CentOS was taken in by Red Hat. And this was yeah. pretty an acquisition, but I understood the reason for it. Like there was a synergy there and that synergy was it's very expensive to maintain build infrastructure. So like you look at open source projects like OpenBSD or CentOS, what the actual expense is, is you got to store all those RPMs somewhere. You got to, yeah. you have to have build boxes, you, uh, you have all the test automation. That costs actual money. And when you're operating at the scale of CentOS, when you're operating at the scale of OpenBSD, yeah, that is, uh, it's a full-time job to keep that going. Uh, you're, you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. It, it is not cheap. So when someone says, oh, I'm going to start up my own CentOS thing, you almost will say like, oh, you, you just happen to have a few racks of equipment lying around and you're, you're ready to make this a full-time job? Because I don't think you are. Uh, like, it, Believe it or not, it could be a lot of work just to have your own private Yum repository, even if you like have it pretty well automated, like you know, there there's there's effort there. yeah So I feel that Red Hat really betrayed a lot of people in the ecosystem with this one. Yeah. And whether or not it makes money in the short term, it's like this was a long-term thing because someone like myself, well, guess what? I'm I'm already having my own existential fork in the road <laughs> moment. And I don't have to keep using Red Hat, yep. and you know my my work would it has in the past. We're like, hey, yeah, this spec file is broken. So you know, the, it's largely the Red Hat ecosystem that benefits, but with people who are cleaning up spec files or you know fixing build pipeline stuff, they, they were getting that work for free.
1: And so, for the Rubyists out there, when we say spec files, we're talking about the RPM spec files for, yes. for building
0: an RPM. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <About that. laughs> Not the uh, spec files for your tests, your Ruby code. There are some days I honestly feel if the uh, if the Debian <laughs> build system was a little less, uh, I, I mean, I, I'm i not going to go into the minute details, but I really That's like spec so- files more. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, dev make and the dev tools, like building a dev is actually much harder than building an RPM. You know, unless you use something like FPM, but like the the actual tooling is so confusing to me. I, I don't know if you've had the same experience or if I'm missing something well
0: to be fair like this is experience from seven years ago so they they yeah. might have fixed some of this stuff in the meantime but what drew me to uh rpms versus uh, dev files is an rpm uh, the assumption is you don't actually modify the artifact that you're getting from the upstream so say like say yeah. you've got a closed source binary blob well look i I can't just jam in, you know, the I, yeah, like, you can, but maybe I really don't want to. Maybe I just want some
1: Maybe it's system. signed, and you don't want to invalidate the signature of that binary.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There, there's, there's legitimate reasons where it's just yeah. I really want to touch this artifact. So, an RPM allows you to, I mean, you can patch it, like, there's things you can do to okay, we're going to take this tarball and add in some Red Hat-specific stuff. Uh, but generally, it just sort of stood alone, whereas the um, the Debian, Ubuntu uh, packaging stuff, you had to do a little more surgery, and I just I didn't really like that approach. And also, and again, maybe this has been dealt with since then, uh, but at the time, I found the documentation between Debian and Ubuntu, like, I realized Ubuntu... Yes, it is a fork, and, like, they obviously trade a bunch of code, but it's just different enough that it could be a real pain in the butt to get stuff working correctly.
1: Yeah. Uh, so and maybe I'd like to see if I can try to clarify that, just for the people who aren't familiar with Ubuntu and Debian as well, too, because, and this will help, like, you know, fill in any gaps in my knowledge. So we talked about, like, the Red Hat side of the world, and under Red Hat there's the Red Hat Enterprise Linux, there's the CentOS, there's Fedora, and then the other side of sort of the like mainstream Linux world is Debian, right? And Debian is a community project that's run by a community, a group of community. I think that's like elected and it changes often, but it's all volunteer-based. And from there, there's the Ubuntu operating system, which is sort of a fork of whatever Debian is doing. And then they put in, it's a, more or less managed by a company called Canonical, which I think was started by Mark Shuttlesworth. Is that right? Yep. Um. And so they they make their money off of consulting and building, uh, taking the Debian distribution, applying all the Ubuntu stuff on it, making some of their own different choices in terms of desktop environments and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and then uh, distributing that as a, a, a you know supported version of Linux that they provide support on, and that's how they make their money. There's also other variants of Debian like Pop OS and some other. Um, I, I'm not sure if I can think of any off the top of my head, but Kubuntu and Edubuntu, et cetera. But for the most part, the canonical who is distributing Ubuntu is benefiting off of the work that's happening by Debian, which is sort of a community project, but then they're also feeding back that knowledge and support in some way. Um, hopefully. Yeah.
0: Where yeah. it makes sense. Um, Where it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. When you, when you look at players outside of Red Hat and, I'm going to exclude Oracle's. Uh, they've got a thing called, oh, uh, right. I believe it's Unbreakable Linux. But, you know, this also might be one of the reasons why uh, Red Hat wanted to um, change how they handled CentOS was it sort of throws a monkey wrench in um, in Unbreakable Linux by Oracle. Also, Amazon Linux. Yes. So, uh, which I believe is also a Red Hat variant. So uh, there, there was a lot of corporate users who were kind of getting a free ride. But again, I sort of sp- I sort of wonder, like, how much was that a problem and how much was that cutting into Red Hat's bottom line where they felt it was necessary? It's too bad because CentOS is the community enterprise
1: OS, right? Mm -hmm. It's the community edition of the uh, Red Hat enterprise. And as you mentioned, it started as like a volunteer project. And I I don't remember hearing when it was acquired by Fedora or not Fedora, by uh, Red Hat. So I, I was actually surprised that they were owned by Red Hat. And then what they did is they provided like a stable OS that you could run as your server, right? That stability was important for a lot of mm-hmm. companies that were trying to keep costs down and couldn't afford to pay. I'm not sure if Red Hat you pay licenses or if it's just support. I don't understand how how they how how that relationship works. But it was a stable OS, right? And almost like overnight, that stability is just it's just it's gone. It's no longer stable. I think there was like a migration path from CentOS 7 to CentOS 8 something like that, and there is a migration path, but after that, it's time to start thinking about... CentOS Streams. Streams, that's what it is, yeah. CentOS Streams. Okay, yeah. and and so that stability is sort of gone, and now this decision is being presented to really everyone who's running CentOS to make a decision about what you're going to do in the next few years in terms of, are you going to continue to run CentOS, look at this streams thing, or pony up the cash and start paying for uh, the equivalent of uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux licenses or support uh, which I guess makes sense but it's it sucks for me at the same time uh, because as you're mentioning like a community of people came together to build this distribution to increase and share knowledge in the Red Hat community which benefited Red Hat probably to some extent which you know made them popular enough to need to be acquired by IBM and now the <laughs> the thank you note is, Sorry, we're done. <laughs> We've got what we want from you now. So we're going to try to try to um, find another way to monetize this, which I don't know. Like that hurt. I don't know if I like that. It's like too businessy for me, uh, too cutthroat for me in a
0: sense. Well, the original CentOS founder, I guess there's obviously a desire for a whole lot of people to. Oh, OK, we're we're going to restart just under a new banner. But again, with the same. Original idea of we're going to take the Red Hat source RPMs and make something that's just a no name rel, but with the streams part, I feel like it's going to muddy the water sufficiently that is probably just going to turn off again a lot of people who otherwise would have kept going with it.
1: <sighs> so do you yeah. go to Debian now? What do you do? Are you if you're of oh. building a server today from scratch you don't have you know legacy environment where you have to support CentOS and rel, are you thinking Debian?
0: Are you going Slack Debian
1: wear. ten or nine? Slackware. Oh,
0: going to Slack. Oh, you mentioned OpenBSD as well. Maybe we go BSD. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I honestly, again, it, I'm I'm in this beautiful place where it's just okay. I could keep using Fedora because I I under I understand the ecosystem and it's fine. But yeah. you know, free BSD has a lot going for it. OpenBSD yeah. has a lot going for it. I'm having there the are same so questions many right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So I I pulled down like a Debian ISO. The other night, and I threw it onto an old MacBook uh, laptop just because I'd never really run Debian, like pure Debian before. And I'm evaluating. I wouldn't be, you know, had this stuff, you know, not popped up. It just sort of, like, questioned, like, who, where should I be putting my loyalty and energy right now? And so the first thing I noticed is that because I'm putting this on an old MacBook, it didn't have the the non-free wireless drivers. And as soon as I hit that, I was like, oh, not this. (laughs) <laughs> like, I understand, but it's a pain to go get the to, to get the non-free drivers uh, anyways. But I got through it. And then it made me also like start reading the FreeBSD wiki again. I was like, hey, maybe, you know, like FreeBSD is interesting because it's also another community project where the, the sort of the leaders of that community are elected. They're, they're on the sort of board for a certain amount of time. So it brings in new fresh thinking. They are looking for new contributions and people. Maybe you should look at go look at a BSD now for next year.
0: When there's no real business incentive to screw over your users, I feel that's actually, at least for my own personal wants and for what I want to run at home, yeah. I, I think that there's a long-term user to be benefit. loyal to that. Yeah. yeah, I if I had started. In with Debian when I was a teenager, how how would my life be different now?
1: Right. Uh, yeah, you probably have a Debian email address right now and oh, be one of the volunteers
0: man. on the um in the Debian community. Yeah. Oh man. I maybe I've been making the wrong life choices all this time, Mo. Uh, oh,
1: it's like that red pill, blue
0: pill. Uh, <laughs> you know, it all started yeah. with Fedora or Red Hat. What you know, whatever it was. Well, if I'm honest about why I used Red Hat in the first place, it was my, my first um my first real interaction with a Red Hat server was uh one I had gotten from the dump. Um, <laughs> cool. and and it, it had Red Hat installed on it and I had to learn how to like, okay, well, single user mode. And so that was my Sweet. first experience. That's and that's an then, amazing story. And, and then after that was uh I gotten this uh compact um Crappy little Pentium, but That's because totally Red Hat good. worked, that was that was what I used. And um, like yeah. I'm,
1: yeah.
0: And, and I, you know, at the time it was just still so green that anything that works is yeah already better. Um, and you know, I I could have just said, well, you know what, Windows sucks, but I'm gonna keep going. But I knew I wanted to run something not Windows for the same reason of I don't want to be dealing with something that has a corporate motive behind it, which may not be shared by myself. Right. So hilariously, like, oh, so I'll go to Red Hat, which then turned into another billion-dollar company. Um, right, exactly. Right. <laughs> like, uh,
1: you support uh, the underdog until they become the not until underdog. They <laughs> <IBM>. <laughs> yeah, until they become <laughs> IBM. Yes, until they become
0: IBM. So I I feel it, it, my next step is going to be something which, it's, it might be, you know, at BSD, it might be Slackware, but it's going to be a community-driven thing because, I, you know, You only want to make these changes so many times in your life because I don't enjoy having to relearn how to make packages again. Like, there's a lot of just drudgery and learning all that stuff. Um, That's a nice segue because that was my thing for
1: 2020. Why can't we have this in 2020? Is just a cross-platform packaging and distribution system. Like, I think we have Nix. Maybe we have Nix and we're going to jump into Nix OS. Um, (laughs) But, I mean, like, packaging and, and just... So, like, just having, okay, let's say I build a statically linked, you know, single binary that I wanted to deploy that just works on everything. I can't have that today, right? And this was the dream of, you know, JVM, you know, build once, run everywhere.
0: Still can't have that. That was, like, 20 years ago. We still haven't achieved that. We're getting closer, but. uh, You're describing Nix, and that's very much of the past, like, five, ten years, I want to say. Tell our listeners what Nix is and why why I, they should I'm try it. I'm
1: just only learning about Nix. So Nix is an ecosystem. It's a, a way for building and deploying packages. It's also, it's, there's Nix OS, which is like a version of uh, Linux that uses Nix as like the default packaging system. Um, but in itself, like the Nix packaging system, from what I understand, is built around these ideas of functional languages where you can have item potent um, uh, installations of software. You can have multiple versions of software. Uh, Everything is immutable by default. So you could have various versions of the same uh, piece of software on a single machine. And everything's like stored in a single like folder as a as sort of like the database and the paths in the in the database is sort of like the hashes. I don't I haven't really traversed the whole database structure for Nix, but it's interesting because it also works across Linux and Mac OS. At least I know. I don't know of any other systems where it runs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, you know, I want to talk about this more because I want. I think this is something that I want to learn more about.
0: What, what am I missing? Well, I will say from my own personal experience with Nix, um, it really helps if you read two things. One, the manual, front to back, um, okay. because okay. because the ideas are different enough from how other platforms do it like you really got to soak that in and then the phd thesis behind um Nix, which it, it's more readable than it sounds um but once you've got that all of a sudden in the same way of like oh whoa i'm, I'm suddenly seeing the world in a different way and why, why are we doing all this why are we still using memory unsafe languages why are we still <laughs> using package uh, systems which yeah um Oh, I have to run homebrew over here. I have to run apt-get
1: over here. I have to run yum over here. Uh, Can I just just have the one package manager that just installs the package? Yeah.
0: Like, I I don't mean to steal any steam from, like, uh, other package managers, because, like, homebrew, I I actually really like the DSL in that. But Mm -hmm. things like Nix, I want to say that's the future. Like, maybe what we need to do this episode is say, these are the things we should be doing in 2030. Um, it's like, okay, everyone, this is the 10-year plan. Like, yeah. let's let's all work on this and, you know, make, make computers better for our children because uh, they're terrible for us.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> yes. Oh, I hope that my children don't have to learn uh, multiple package managers just to install, let's say Vim, <laughs> like one, I just want to run a text editor Vim. Do I have to go install brew homebrew or uh Mac ports or uh, yum DNF apt uh, RPM from scratch? And then like package hosting is another thing. Um, uh, like that in itself, like if you're going to run your own packaging uh, repos and servers, like it's not that hard, but it's nuanced, right? There's definitely certain things that you have to know that about RPM build and, and rebuilding the RPM indexes if you're, you're running your own YUM repo. Debian, I've never done, so I don't know the details on that. But it's like this seems like it should be a solved
0: problem, you know, building things and distributing them. Nix, I th- I think we can solidly put that in the twenty thirty category. Of, okay. If okay, everyone should just move to Nix or a Nix type thing. Like there there's a I believe it's called Guix, which is it's basically Nix but with the Guile scheme. Um, oh, <laughs> <laughs> like I you know I don't think we really needed like a scheme <laughs> thing, but but you know what if, it, so if Nix it is now the, like
1: the reference implementation and we're starting to see other implementations of the same idea.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think the entire world moving the scheme is going to be a 2030 thing. I don't think that's going to be an ever thing. If I'm <laughs> <honest>. <laughs> because, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love me a lisp, but, uh, I, you know, that's an acquired taste, is, is the sad truth of it. Uh-huh. Um, oh, what else? What is what else are we still dealing with, Mo? Where? Why? Why is that still a thing? Passwords. Oh, like I mean, like yeah. we have
1: password managers and we have multi-factor authentication, but having to generate, store passwords, and then think about them and synchronizing those credentials or credential stores across devices is still annoying for me. I've been using Password Store for quite a, for a little while now, and I've enjoyed it. And then this, the other part is uh, like whenever you generate uh, multi-factor or time-based one-time password. Uh, OTP uh, provisioning URI string with this with the actual secret key. It always inevitably comes with backup codes, and it says, go print your backup codes and put in your wallet." And I'm like, "How many how many backup Who codes do you that? think I could fit in my wallet? <laughs> like, really?" <laughs> and so, um, for me personally, what I end up doing is I use Pass OTP for storing my provisioning URI, and with Pass you can edit the file, so I put the backup codes in that file, which is probably not a good thing. I shouldn't keep the backup codes in the same place no. as the provisioning URI. But I certainly place. do not print them and put them in my wallet. Um, well,
0: who has a printer anymore? I mean, <laughs> I I, I'd, I'd say 2020. 2020 like, a yeah, but I, yeah, good I've point. i great player, point. But most people yeah. don't really keep them anymore. And what you're going to yeah. go to Kinkos and like, uh, you know, <laughs> yes. put on your mask, like <laughs> David. I don't know if everyone r- knows. Wear your Kinko's. rubber gloves <laughs> and it's like, yeah, like uh, let, let's head down to Staples. I got to print off my ten codes, And, you know, surely that printer is yes, not backdoored. Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, and it, that, I'm sure it, it isn't going to stay in memory or. or yeah. Actually, oh. oh, my goodness. Never thought about backdooring a, a Staples printer. Uh,
0: there's been problems in the past where old copying machines. So most yeah. new photocopiers have a hard drive in them, you know, for like very legitimate features. But what they do is they actually keep a copy of what you have. So there were problems where like police departments would get rid of their old copying machines, oh and those hard drives weren't wiped. And oh, so no. that data would just go out and, you know, like people's passports, you name it. Like it just we don't realize where data is stored in a data. lot of these devices or that data yeah. is being stored. And, you know, it just travels out the back door into the trash. And, you know, weirdos like me go, oh, hey, a hard drive, plug it in somewhere. See what's on it. So don't do that. And I mean, I don't want to say the advice is buy a printer, but it's hilarious. You know, when we talk about how bad those password notebooks are, but if you don't have a printer, but you have these one-time password things, like, well, where do you put them?
1: (laughs) Yes. And and the recommendation is like, make sure you have a copy of these recovery codes. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, print them. And I was like, that's not a, and as you're pointing out, like asking someone to print off recovery codes seems like a thing of the past like that's not something we should expect anyone to ever actually do it's I mean we, as you mentioned like having your password on a sticky or a password notebook like that's what we're asking people to do with those recovery codes by putting them on a printer yep. and they're just as good as a uh, multi-factor authentication token right because you they're the recovery codes
0: <laughs> but let me tell you here's what I expect in twenty twenty one um because it's already happening in 2020 I bet we're going to see in the new year a lot more attacks where you try to bypass the multi-factor authentication, and mm-hmm. that is some that. scary. Stuff. So um, the U.S. government hack, I believe they they were leveraging that. Um, Sorry, what U.S. government hack? I'm not familiar with this. Oh, the so there's a big thing going on in the U.S. right now where so there was a supply chain attack on one vendor, and I'm not I'm not going to go into names because like honestly, uh, the important part isn't who it's. How? How? So okay. So was a supply chain attack where they attacked a product that was in use in the U.S. government, which is bad. Oh and, no! And, and then the private key for the multi-factor authentication system ended up getting leaked, exposed, whatever, and what so they mean were able the to. the
1: private key? There was one key that was used.
0: Well, so for these systems, often there's you know a private key that for how you generate those secrets.
1: Uh, so if you
0: have that. What you can do is you can bypass the multi-factor authentication system. There's no record of a login on that because you, you just created a new cookie and went in through the system. And in, in many cases, you're assuming, well, the multi-factor authentication is where that logging is going to happen. If that's not there, then how that and let me tell you, once you've seen this actually like when someone does it, because it it's I don't want to say it's easy, but it's not like this is an impossible task here. You go, oh, gosh, that was that was sort of our last line of defense. What do we, How do you watch this system? And so you, you have to make sure you're cross-referencing the system that you're using this multi-factor authentication on. It's like, OK, if you had a login on product A and your multi-factor authentication, which is product B, if you're not seeing it on both, then you, you know that there's been a bypass. Um, One of the steps has been bypassed. Yeah. But how many systems are you actually, because also think, like, okay, mm. Mm. how many product A's are there? Uh, and
1: so, oh, my what, you just going Dash-
0: to do that live cross-referencing? Like, I would be surprised if anyone's seriously uh, dealing with that right now. So, I mean, that is a trademark anomaly in that, like, wait, we're seeing this here, but not there. That's clearly a, a problem. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And you know, as
1: as you're saying this, like my mind is traveling towards thinking about consumer-grade routers that uh, people are running at home, <laughs> and you know, the, the the perimeter of our corporate network is now basically as good as the weakest router uh, that we're using in our home environments, right? So like, if that's the thing that's sort of protecting entry into the home network, which then gets entry into uh, a work machine, which then inevitably gets entry to et cetera, et cetera. So if we're pivoting on the network, we're no longer trying to break into the corporate firewall uh, from at an office. We're trying to break into just an employee's home, which uh, I would like to see an improvement in the, the consumer hardware or consumer grade hardware that's supporting these home networks. Because we've we've got a lot of people working from home, and I suspect
0: they will be for quite some time. I've got some bad news for you on that front. Um, oh. and, and it was an article I read just the other day, and they were oh, looking no, at um, binary hardening on consumer Internet of Things stuff. And yeah. yeah, it really hasn't gotten better over the past decade. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, oh, man. And, and again, like, where's the financial incentive? Because if you're not getting, yeah. I mean, I hate to propose things like fines for, like, hey, you need to be using you know, memory safe language, or hey, you need to be using stack protection. Hey, you need to be implementing these things which we know it makes it makes it harder to compromise these things. Mm-hmm. So if an engineering firm builds a bridge you doing things which we know to be bad, like there's consequences to that. Marketplace mm-hmm. consequences, sure. But like also, you know, like if that bridge falls down, yeah, well you better believe you're you're definitely gonna be dealing with that in, in some pretty major way. Whereas, OK, say you ship some home router firmware where, I mean, this thing is just like it's a PHP application. that's running as roots. And right. like, you know, th- these practices, which we know are just it- it's not like this is a, a, a yeah. sudden revelation that this is bad. We've known this was bad since the 70s um, on some of this stuff. Why are we still that doing that? Reminds it?
1: me, there's a new item that I just spotted in my Wi-Fi scanning recently of like an open thermostat. One of my neighbors has an open thermostat right now, and I'm, I, I keep looking at this thing, and I'm like, I should figure out who's who owns this thermostat and why they haven't <laughs> they haven't secured it. Why is it still broadcasting? They probably bought this thermostat not even realizing that it has this Wi-Fi feature, which just broadcasting, waiting for someone to connect and configure it and control the heating in their home. <laughs> and, and that's what you're saying, right, David? Like like having the default passwords on their router and like buying it from the store, never updating the firmware on it, uh, just throwing it in their home, connecting it to the internet and saying, I've got great internet, but so does everyone around you. <laughs> yeah.
0: I, I mean, I know there's lots of folks who are just like, ah, oh, security bugs. You know, people just go, ooh, security things. But... Yeah. We, we need to be treating them as bugs they're they're same as if like, oh, you know, I, I sneeze on my router and it reboots like that that would be a pretty that would be a bug you would fix. I mean'd yeah. be a little concerned if it actually did reboot on something like that, but um, yeah. Yeah. same same idea is a security bug is a bug, so fix it <laughs> um, yeah. and, and yeah. do things that help you avoid those classes of bugs oh man that that that's such a healthy rant I've, I've been wanting to get this off my chest for like a few weeks <laughs> finding
1: i'm like get it all like, out is that is that everything did we get it all david
0: ah uh, that felt cathartic um yeah uh, i mean i i don't know if we're going to change the world but let, let's think of other things that let, let's aim for 2030 for this to not be a thing anymore mm-hmm. so what's what else are, are we dealing with where it's 2020 why is this still a thing
1: I don't know how long I've been doing this, David, but uh, I think it was around 2006, 2007. It was 2005 when I started listening to the Security Now podcast with Steve Gibson and Leo Laporte. And I remember them. Uh, they did this four-part series on how the Internet works. And that's sort of like my introduction to like DNS and, and IP, etc. Um, but I think it was during that series they also talked about this thing called the Etsy hosts file. And the Etsy host files is this file on your machine. And it's in Windows, it's in Linux, it's in macOS, where you can enter IP addresses for specific domains. So you can basically skip a DNS lookup to actually just resolve the IP address from Etsy hosts. But at the same time, you can also use this to sinkhole a domain. So if there's a domain you don't want to go to, you can add an entry to your Etsy host file to 0.0.0.0. And so at that time, I remember Steve talking about this uh, list that was maintained by someone I can't remember now.
0: Yeah, it's uh, like
1: someone someone who helps you or something like that. Uh, I I know the one you're you're talking it about. It was well. mvps.org I think was the website mvps something something yeah. mvps. But I remember we'll going the there. Notes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I would on a regular basis I'd go copy the latest lists of like domains to block, which is, like ad servers, uh, malicious sites, things that I just probably never want to connect to. So I'd update my Etsy host file and that became a pattern that I started doing on every machine. The the lists that I started using started changing. I think the one I'm using now is from Stephen Black, I think, and it's broken down into categories, but I have a, like a shell script that I run called update hosts. And, and then I can do it like a diff of like the old host and the new host and any custom entries that I have. And I run that on a regular basis, maybe like once a month or every other month or every uh, couple months. And this is something I'm tired of doing. You know, like I'm I'm glad that I know how to do this, but I I I don't want this to be a problem anymore. I just want to sinkhole these DNS entries. I've been using Cloudflare and I know Cloudflare there's 1.1.1.1, but there's also like the family version and they've got like 1.2.2.1 or something, I can't remember. There's a few different versions. And I don't know, David, for using DNS isn't as like satisfying to me as knowing that when I put these entries into my Etsy host file, I'm not even going to make the DNS lookup, rather than trying to resolve a, uh, a DNS entry that resolves to loopback or 0.0. This is something that just annoys me. It's just like habit that I keep doing. And I taught my own kids to start doing this. And they're like, this thing is ridiculous. <laughs> and I'm like, you're right. This is ridiculous. Why should they
0: have to learn to, to do this? I mean, that's a denialist approach in some sense where we just say, mm-hmm. look, we know we don't want this. But I would really love to see a, a variant of that, which is an allow list approach where you just say, mm-hmm. Actually, you know yeah. what, I I, I want to see Twitter. Yeah. And, yeah, you could probably do yeah. something. Oh, gosh, I, I know what I'm doing this Christmas vacation. Um, but, <laughs> Little Snitch? Are we talking about Little Snitch? Um, well, and for those who don't know Little Snitch, it's this um, a program that on Mac it will tell you what network traffic's actually happening. Although there there's it's shenanigans like, <laughs> going on right now, which... Uh, it's the, so an alarm for Mac OS. Yeah, yeah, very <laughs> much so. But I would love to just say, look, allow Twitter, allow these domains, because I yeah. know that's yeah. that's and what I'm actually trying to go see. It makes much
1: more sense now that you you say it, yeah.
0: Um, and I realize, yeah, there's going to be an overhead of that. So there's a plugin called NoScript, and what that does is... Yeah. It's That's another good one. <laughs> it allow it, it's an allow list of um of javascript. And yeah, I realize okay, often it's oh well I'm I'm loading this blog and okay, I don't know why people would especially for blogs where we'll load a page and then we'll do a, a json or we'll oh. do a
1: uh,
0: <laughs> we'll, we'll do a separate
1: an XHR request to go get the json feed to load the blog posts in the page or something.
0: Yeah, it's so unnecessary. Um, yeah, yeah. HTML still works. It works great. Um, yeah. <laughs> like they, they've improved it since, you know, 3.2. Yeah. So, like, once you run something like that and you see, oh, look at all this garbage that yes. every page is trying to load. Oh, yeah. Maybe I just want to say, yeah, you know, there's obviously a bunch of CDNs that unfortunately you have to put it in. But, um there's a whole bunch of stuff that I know I do not want. There's a whole bunch of spyware that I do not want. And they're always going to be coming up with new names because that's how they operate. Um, There's a financial incentive to get around it. And, uh, you know, they'll have a financial incentive to go on to those CDNs. Um, Like a lot of stuff ends up on CloudFront or CloudFlare. And especially because folks think, well, hey, how do we get this down to... uh, one request. Let's merge all the JavaScript files into one JavaScript monstrosity and dump that. To, to the developers who do that, um, we're watching you. Um, yeah, I'm curling. I, I'm, I'm curling aware of this. And I can see it. Like, um, I can see. It. Wait. <laughs> and and I, I've, it's a real anti-pattern, and it's not in the user's best interest, so why would you do it? So I, I would love to have something where Again, it just says, hey, these are the DNS calls. And I know that I would have to do um, something in order to not be hitting disk all the time. And actually, that's one thing I would like to say. This this episode is brought to you by Bloom Filters. To go on a bit of a tangent, I've, uh, I've finally been doing a whole bunch of reading on stuff, which, you know, I'll, I'll be real. I should have done this, like, decades ago. But I finally learn about bloom filters. And this is like a perfect use case for it is, okay, if don't hit disc, if you know that, look, uh, I, I have allow listed twitter.com. Um, yeah. So something like that would be perfect. And, and, you know, it'd be fine to do a DNS lookup for that because obviously IPs are going to change. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. But there's domains that frankly, I just know I'm, I'm never going to allow. Um, yeah. And well, like, I, I could keep doing a um, a denialist approach here. I, there's just no point. It, yeah. th- there's always going to be more crap. Yeah. But I'd say that the, the stuff that I want to read, that's actually a pretty stable amount of stuff. So, well, Mo, I, I think we just, uh, if this doesn't already exist, I'm, I'm certainly, certainly going to look after the episode. Um, yeah, this, I,
1: is, this is a great idea. I'm, I'm going to write life. a thing,
0: and I already know how I'm going to, like, implement it. So um, Bloom Filters, if you've never used a Bloom Filter or you don't know what it is, yeah, I definitely look it up, because th- that is a cool thing. And I, I feel my life's better for it. So, mm-hmm. I wanted to also say that this episode's
1: brought to you by Little Snitch. I've recently started using macOS again, uh, partly because I have to, because of the developer tools at this new place. And uh, being back in the macOS ecosystem, I I remember many years ago trying out Little Snitch, and I gave it a try again, and I've enjoyed seeing all the network connections that my machine is making and being able to say, no, thanks, I'm good, or yes, that's cool, you can go through, or why is this Jamf thing, like, why is it calling out all the freaking time? And what are all these Apple subdomains? Like, what is swscan.apple.com? Uh, so this episode is brought to you by uh, Little Snitch. Yeah. If, in case you want to know what your computer's doing, Little Snitch.
0: hmm I, I would actually say pay pay that. I just,
1: I liked it.
0: Yeah. It's I, sad. I
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Sorry. We expect nothing in return. So okay. um, yeah. that's just one of those things we can just recommend.
1: It is also surprising to me how much stuff you have to pay for in the Mac OS ecosystem. Like, and it's so normal. It seems like the culture is normal to pay for things in Mac OS, whereas I guess I got a little um, used to not paying for stuff in Linux. Maybe I don't know if it's a goodish or badish thing, but
0: I I think it I think it can be a good thing because there's been stuff yeah. in the Linux ecosystem i paid for and would happily pay for again. Uh, so for Vim, yeah. um, I I donated to, oh, uh, yeah. because Vim is uh, charityware. So right. uh, he asks that you donate to a um, uh, Ugandan refugee organization or it, it it's. It, it's a good organization, so I I sent twenty euros and you know I got the warm fuzzies from it. So um, yeah. definitely do yeah. that if you use Vim. Like it, it's not a big ask, but you know there there are products that I I've, I've paid for and I abs it was a hundred percent worth you know the price of admission. And yeah. you know yes, there's I'm so glad that there were things like open source and you know free software that allowed me to learn what I know now. Yeah. Um, because it can be very expensive. Like, okay, let's say you're you're starting up now, and I, I realize, uh, you know, starting up now, you have GitHub, which is free and, like, all stuff. But let, let's go back to, like, the 90s. Compilers, generally, you paid for those. And um, the there, IDE, there was just a lot of... Yeah,
1: to be able to code,
0: you had to pay. Um, yep. For the most part, yeah. And there's still stuff that y- you have to pay for. I don't Think that that's a bad thing. As yeah. as long as you've got some other way of, uh, sort of like CentOS. Look, I have this use case. I don't have the money for it, but you know, it it'll come out karmically. Uh, yeah. You know, I'll, I'll send right. any patches upstream. It, it's the rising tide lifts all boats sort of sentiment. Yep, that makes sense. That makes uh, sense. Another yeah. piece
1: of software I paid for recently. Well, I guess this one is the organization paid for, but I'm loving it. It's also for Mac OS. Is called Tuple App, T U P L E dot App, and it's a, a program that you can use for pair programming. It does screen sharing, it shares a keyboard. It is fantastic. Uh, it, I can't say enough of good things. It's just it doesn't get in my way. It just works. I haven't had any issues with connection, uh, repainting the screens. It's been fantastic. Keyboard sharing, even like just during pair programming. Uh, someone can annotate on your screen just to like say, oh, just highlight this section of the code with a little marker. It's I, it's amazing. So check it out if you're on macOS and you like pair programming. Again, they didn't pay me, but Ben Ornstein, if you're listening, you're, you're welcome to pay me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. No, I don't want any money. Just a hug. Great. I guess for uh, all you listeners, I mean, I'd say for 10 episodes, it, it's already left me with a, a lot of really positive memories.
1: <laughs> has it been 10 already this is the it's 10th wicked. episode <laughs> wow thanks yeah. for listening thanks for doing this david this has been so much fun and i'm glad that you invited me on this
0: journey it's been amazing yep i've enjoyed i, I at this point now we we know at least 15 of you have listened to this and <laughs> i really do mean it yet your feedback is really appreciated more than yeah. anything else um i'm not gonna be one of those like oh rate our podcast or oh send our money to Patreon or something. We don't have a Patreon. But you know, we just like hearing that you enjoy it. That that's why we do it. So,
1: yeah. Thank you. Thank you for everyone who's listening. Mm-hmm. And um and David, thank you for doing all the editing. I know it takes a lot of time, and you make it sound like it's it's nothing, but it's not nothing, David. It's a lot of work. And thanks for thanks for doing it.
0: Thank you, Mo. We'll we'll have uh, another one for you soon and and hopefully I'll I'll have episode 9 uh, out before before this one um i'm trying my best not to like clump these and just like dump three podcasts at a time but it's uh i don't know that's just how i part of it is like i I still have to clean a whole bunch of crap off my uh my hard drive so that's that's something uh maybe i'll do in the next few weeks but uh, good. great thanks for listening and uh till next time happy hacking